How can we design spaces that make us measurably healthier, happier, and more productive? Join us on Built for Health, where we talk with public health professionals, researchers, and AEC practitioners on the latest knowledge and strategies to design, build, and operate healthier buildings. I'm Flavia Gray. I'm a Schneider Fellow at USGBC, and I'll be your host on Built for Health, brought to you by USGBC. Hi everyone, and welcome to Built for Health. I'm your host, Flavia Gray, and in today's episode, we'll discuss public spaces and urban design with Dr. Deborah Cohen from Rand Corporation and Derek Yang from Stanford University. They will tell us about their background, the benefits of public parks for increased exercise, and of public spaces for social interaction and serendipitous encounters as well as provide us with some data-driven strategies for designing urban spaces. Uh, hi, I'm Deborah Cohen. I'm a senior scientist at the RAND Corporation, and I'm a physician that specializes in public health and preventive medicine. And um, I got interested in parks mainly because they're a destination for physical activity, which is a very important health behavior uh, for uh, longevity, for the prevention of chronic diseases, for well-being and has, you know, multiple benefits. Uh, and the problem today is that most people are too inactive. Uh, very few people actually meet the national guidelines for physical activity. And uh, my research was to figure out how uh, parks might play a role in uh, encouraging people to be more physically active. My name is Derek O'Yang. I am a lecturer at Stanford University in the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. I primarily am involved in a new initiative called Sustainable Urban Systems, which is currently a graduate program a track that students can choose when they're getting a Master's of Science degree. And it's very much focused on data-driven decision-making at the urban scale, bringing engineers to the planner's table and recognizing that improving quality of life and health as well in cities is not just uh, about physical and hard infrastructure, but it's about the softer systems of policy and economics and governance and our social connections. And I think on the topic of health, it's especially clear how a, uh, a solely physical and, dare I say, building-oriented <laughs> approach is, is potentially inadequate to really think about uh, population health. Great, thank you. So let's dive into the topic. And Deborah, tell us a little bit more about the importance, as you were saying, of public spaces for activity and movement, and why do we care? Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, physical activity is very important for health. And um, it turns out that when people are outdoors, they are much more likely to engage in what we call moderate to vigorous physical activity. And it's a level of intensity which is about like a brisk walk or more. And uh, you can imagine that if you're stuck indoors with limited spaces, it's not a place you can run or jump, you know, without potentially breaking things or running into things. And so getting people outdoors is a, a great way to get them to be, um, have more intense activity. And, and intense activity is important for fitness. Uh, and for children, it's important for them to 
you know, build muscles and strengthen their bones. And it's actually, you know, important for everybody because if you aren't active and you're not uh, always, you know, uh, using your muscles, uh, they waste. Uh, and, and that's a huge problem with uh, if people are aging, uh, they engage in less physical activity and then they start to have their muscles weaken and their bones crumble. Uh, so uh, for so many reasons, it's important to be active and being outdoors not only can expose you to the sun, which can help you make vitamin D, which is also good for your bones and, and other uh, functioning. Um, you know, we really, really need to uh, help people uh, be outdoors and engage in more physical activity on a regular basis. Great. So who is using public parks and what have you discovered about the way that parks are being used? Well, um, we have just completed a national study of neighborhood parks, uh, which are parks that are uh, between three and 20 acres uh, that, you know, have facilities for recreation and sport. And um, we uh, went to 27 different cities and 193 parks, and we had people going to the parks three times a day, four days a week, to actually count uh, people that are there and to document what they're doing. And we counted people by their gender, were they male or female? We counted them by their age group. They were, they were children, teens, adults, or seniors. We counted them by their race, race ethnicity. And we also counted them by their activity level. Were they sedentary, in moderate activity, or vigorous activity? And, and we found some surprising things. You know, uh, this was a representative sample of the entire United States. And uh, what we could tell is, first of all, that there are a lot of disparities in who's using parks and who's active in parks. So first of all, there are more males using parks than females. And males are much more likely to engage in moderate to vigorous physical activity than females. And that's across, you know, all the age groups. And it's uh, surprisingly, it was even more common among children and teens that there are more males than females. And, and that was a big surprise. So that of all the children we counted in the parks, 60% were male. Of all the teens in the parks, 65% were male and only 35% female. So um, there's already uh, a huge disparity at, at such a young age. We also found that among the adult women in the parks, uh, they were much less likely to be moderate or vigorously active or participate in any sports. Uh, they were much more likely to be the person chaperoning children in the play areas. Um, and seniors, we saw very, very few seniors. So seniors are about 18% of the U.S. population, but they're only 4% of the park users. So um, many disparities in, um, in gender, in age, and we also saw disparities based on the neighborhood socioeconomic status. We found that parks were used much less in low-income neighborhoods than in higher-income neighborhoods, even though those neighborhoods had a much higher population density. So, uh, for example, um, even the play areas, uh, for every 10% increase in poverty, uh, in the percent households in poverty in that neighborhood, there were 20% fewer users in the playground areas and 14% and fewer users in the parks overall. Deborah, I wanted to sort of touch on that point because as I've thought about 
the scale of public space and parks as we're thinking about population health, one of the first ideas that comes to mind when you break free of the building boundary is the question of access in urban planning. Uh, and particularly in the city I live in now, San Francisco, the Trust for Public Land, a, a nonprofit institution, uh, measured access and they declared San Francisco one of the most accessible cities in the country to parks. It's, I think it was something like everyone had access to a city park within 10 minutes of walking. And that was heralded as a really important outcome of, uh, let's say, a kind of prescriptive uh, urban design or urban planning choice by the city. But you're suggesting that it's not just access, which maybe a lot of communities aren't even getting to that point yet in thinking at the urban scale, but there's some other qualities of either the design of the park itself or something a little harder to grasp about the urban system, the socioeconomics, the culture, uh, the behavioral choices that may not be leading us to the ultimate outcomes we care about. Yeah, you're exactly right about that. Um, because we went ahead and in, I've done many studies on parks and in some of the studies, we actually went door to door uh, to households within a quarter mile of a park, a half mile of a park, you know, up to a mile or even two miles of a park. And we um, asked them about their use of the park. Now, clearly, people that live within a quarter mile and a half a mile, you know, have access to the park. But even among uh, these, this population, about half of the residents never use the parks. So uh, we, we've studied about the parks and, you know, how many people use them. And we found there are certain characteristics of parks that are used more. So um, a park that really is just lawn and, you know, doesn't have much in it is, is, is not used very well. We find that parks that are larger are used more. Parks with uh, more facilities or amenities are used more. Parks, as I said earlier, in higher income neighborhoods are used more. Parks that have programming are used more. And, and in fact, programming is one of the one of the most uh, strong correlates of park use so that for every additional programmed or supervised activity, the number of the people in the park increases by 50%. And um, I think that's something that uh, Jane Jacobs, you know, who is a great observer of the urban forum, she called demand goods. So mm -hmm. um, there has to be something that draws people to the park. Yeah, I was going to bring up Jane Jacobs uh, just in my own sort of inculcation into the urban scale uh, coming really from my own education and purely architectural design and structural engineering to the urban scale. I think Jane Jacobs' uh, 1961 book, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, was phenomenal in, in building that broader picture. And a lot of it had to do with more of the human interaction scale. And there's a chapter in that book specifically on neighborhood parks, and she's often writing specifically about her own experiences observing parks in Greenwich Village uh, in New York City and, and nearby. And she does talk about four characteristics uh, that I think are complementary to uh, what you just described about demand goods and, and uh, programmed uses in a park. Uh, the first one is intricacy. Uh, and, and I think programmed activities would be part of that, uh, but it includes physical characteristics like walking loops. I know that's a big part of, of your research. Um, there's uh, a quality of centering and enclosure, which somewhat has to do with the ability for large groups to congregate and see each other uh, kind of 
correlate of her eyes on the street concept for buildings to make sidewalks and streets safer and more vibrant places, an enclosure referring to how urban form, the building edges of the perimeter of the park relate to your sense of, of safety and prospect, as, as was discussed in a prior podcast on the series. Uh, and sun was a fourth quality as well. And I think it's helpful to think about some of these aspects as prescriptive measures that can make parks uh, more conducive to the outcomes we care about. Uh, and uh, a lot of the conversations around LEAD, at least as it began, were to come up with prescriptive measures for buildings for a variety of sustainability and performance goals. And I guess there's this larger question of how do we know the connection between prescriptive uh, design measures and qualities and the outcomes we care about. And that's, of course, a big question for, for buildings themselves. But I think in our conversation, we're really trying to make a link between the health outcomes, what ultimately we care about when we're talking about the health of communities and the many, many decisions we can make about rules, about qualities uh, and factors that affect day-to-day -day life. And, and I think parks that we're centering on in this conversation are, are critical and critical with some of these qualities you've, you've described. Yeah, uh, and the, the other thing uh, is also to remember the larger context in which uh, parks function. Um, you know, we've been concerned about the disparity in uh, park use in the high and low income neighborhoods, and we, we've been looking into what are the barriers in low income neighborhoods. And definitely safety uh, is, is an important barrier. Uh, we looked at um, the impact of different crimes on park use over time. We, we were able to do a longitudinal study uh, of park use, and we found that after a shooting or a homicide in the area of the park, the use of the park declines, you know, over the next six months by, I don't know, something, I think it was like 18%. It's, you know, it's a significant impact. And um, we also find that the streetscapes surrounding the parks in the low-income neighborhoods are a lot different. And they may just be discouraging people from being outside, taking walks, you know, going to the park. And so I think there's also this larger picture of the society and, and just making people feel safe that uh, needs to be part of efforts to increase yeah. physical activity. Yeah, some of that is just deciding what exists around the park as well, maybe just as important as the design choices you make in the park, making sure that there are a diversity of people at different times of day using the park for different reasons. Uh, and this was a big part of, of Jane Jacobs' observations as well, that you needed a certain critical mass of usage as well as diversity of use to make people feel safe at all times. And I think you, you can lose sight of that if you're a little bit too focused on just what is approved in the permitting process for individual buildings, or in this case, individual parks. And I think we can all benefit from taking a broader view that often land use and urban planning can provide, um, because some of those uh, sort of contingencies uh, or adjacencies are just as important as, as what is within uh, these parks and buildings. You know, uh, in our studies, we really found that parks are mainly designed for children. Uh, most parks have a play area, at least in our study, like 89% of the parks we visited had play structures, but uh, less than 30% had walking paths or walking loops, you know, and then about half might have a sports field or 
court, uh, maybe a third have tennis courts, but there really are very few or almost none uh, that have facilities that are really designed for seniors. I mean, we have not really thought about seniors' needs in park design, and, and I'm wondering if you had some ideas on, on what kind of structures would attract seniors to parks. Well, perhaps, as, as I was suggesting, it may not necessarily need to be specific interventions in the park, but careful planning around how parks relate to senior centers, relate to senior housing, um, and, and just gener generally community centers. Um, there is the sense that a park can be a meeting space for all members of the community, uh, but that's often not up to the park designer themselves. Uh, it, it comes down to uh, where we place parks and communities and, and, where, and, and what we prioritize in terms of development around these parks. Uh, I recall when, when looking through your research, uh, one thing I've personally never seen is walking paths in a park that are specifically designed for handicapped access or just to have uh, especially designed handrails uh, for less able walkers. And, and I think that would be a, a sort of no-brainer uh, to encourage people to even come in the first place uh, who may be older. And I think this is also a great point um, to jump into thinking about other types of spaces because one of the things is this idea of the park. And as you were saying, a lot of them are designed for children and it is sort of this idea that has been ingrained in society that parks are where you take kids to play. Um, and as you get older, maybe you don't relate that to something that you, know, that you can go and do activities at. And so maybe there are some of the ideas that we can take from parks and implement them in other types of open and public spaces where you already have a mass of older people and seniors, as Derek was saying. And so how do we take some of those elements and bring them? Um, and so I wanted to talk to Derek about some of the, the projects that he has been working on of thinking about other types of public spaces and how do you create new types of interventions and how do you create new ways for people to interact? And so Derek, can you tell us a little bit about how do you approach designing this interventions for existing civic or public spaces that can change the way that people are using the space? Sure. Uh, I personally, through my design consultancy, CloudArc Studio, have primarily been involved in a series of streetscape projects in on Market Street in San Francisco. Uh, before I jump into that, let me just set two kind of high-level ideas, which I think will help with the transition. One is that in terms of thinking about parks and public space more broadly, we're touching on pretty much, if, if listeners have been following the series and we've looked at, at air quality, biophilia, fitness, emotion, acoustics, light, nutrition, and we've been talking about those at the building scale, but they can all be provided through public space as well. So first, we're just providing more design opportunities to produce these health outcomes we care about. And I think one other scale that matters here is that there are, in addition to these direct health benefits for individuals in public space, I think usually when we think about public space, the most important thing is that it provides that social interaction and often can do it in a way that buildings can't provide, either because buildings are designed for very specific private uses or they're just not at the scale that allows for that serendipity that you find on the sidewalk or, or in a park. And I don't know if we have a complete science of how maybe more broadly well-being, mental health, is impacted by 
the amount of engagement you have with strangers and just with all kinds of people in our diverse urban communities. But I think what everyone can intuitively understand is that having more of that in public space in some way can contribute to the well-being and health of a community besides the more direct ways we've talked about a lot in, in this podcast series. So in light of that, the city of San Francisco's planning department in collaboration with uh, a local arts uh, organization, Gerber Buenas Center for the Arts, wanted to bring artists in to specifically tackle that question of how do we create more social interactions, social engagement on our existing public spaces that are often just hardscapes, sidewalks, uh, Market Street particularly is, is notorious for being wide and uh, not very interactive. And so they created a whole design competition called the Market Street Prototyping Festival, which was, to begin with, a three-day festival in April of 2015, in which they invited 50 artists to install installations on the sidewalk. Uh, these were limited in space to about 12 feet by 12 feet. Uh, and it was the artists were given a lot of freedom to come up with their own answers to that. And I think this is a very different scale than a full uh, recreational park, but we may be able to bring some of those elements into the broader public space that, that we all interact with, like sidewalks. Uh, I was one of the artists um, to be selected as a group of 50, and my team and I uh, came up with a lot of design ideas at the urban design scale. What we pretty much focused on was this idea of connection between strangers, and what we designed was uh, conceptually Imagine that you have two buttons that trigger an event. And those two buttons are far enough away that you essentially need two people to trigger that event. One button can be the seat on a bench. The other button can be hidden in the sidewalk, in a brick, or in some other type of standing pavement. And so often this triggers an event without the two strangers even realizing it. And we, we designed this into our 12 foot by 12 foot installation. And the event that was triggered was a surprise jet of water that came out of a landscaping uh, object, a, a sort of a green planter. And that was as simple as the design concept were, was. So there were benches and these hidden stepping stones. And in practice, when we installed this for those three days, it was incredible how many moments of surprise and delight and joy were created when we took a boring sidewalk that most people would just pass by looking on their phones and not interact with strangers and really fostering deep connections. And often we actually found that strangers were helping each other understand how this event was triggered because somebody may see a delightful jet of water or a light uh, happen in the distance and be confused about how that was triggered. And, and then they have to discover that it required two people. Um, and, and that's exactly the kind of social collaboration and community that we were trying to foster. It was between kids and the elderly and the entrepreneur in San Francisco, as well as the homeless individual. And it was an incredible experience. And, and to me, it was a microcosm of those softer social interactions that public space provide, along with all the, the other more direct health uh, factors that we've talked about. And I think a place like San Francisco, in which you're seeing increasing segregation of classes, privatization of space, to think of all public space in this way, that, that there's something important about cities we live in, that, that we can have these human experiences. Uh, and 
that was uh, an incredible project for me to learn about the impacts of, of public space holistically on, on community connectivity and health. Uh, and we ended up doing a few iterations of that uh, with the city of San Francisco. Derek, how do you think that could be translated into something that's happening on an everyday basis and not just as a special project or special occasion? Because, you know, people need connections all the time. You know, they need physical activity, you know, five, if not every day of the week, five days a week, if not every day. Uh, what, what, what do, you, do you have a vision on how that can be sort of incorporated uh, as a constant? Yeah, well, so... First, it's a very complex topic, and I think we, we, we all see that there are decisions that need to be made at the macro scale with planning just to get those key uh, adjacencies and access uh, goals met uh, in, in an urban community. Um, but I think when it comes to the design of the broad variety of, of public spaces we have, all the way from big parks to parklets and these little interactive moments on a corner of an intersection, I think one important realization I had is you don't need necessarily a, a very directly designed urban design intervention, but more the quality in which you can see many things on the street. And I think one important thing that modern architectural movements uh, fail to do was create vibrant uh, walkable spaces on pretty much every length of a block. You often have these modern buildings that were designed as large plinth-like structures that had maybe just one entrance on one side, but then you then rendered the three other sides of a block, essentially dead spaces, in which there are no windows, no uh, views in or out onto more active uses like retail or, or, or other types of, of amenities. And something as simple as that, I think, can create the opportunity to make connections because you see uh, Let's say, I'm, I'm, by the way, speaking to you from Europe, so I'm, I'm in Stockholm, Sweden, and, and I'm just thinking of all the things I saw today as I clocked in 30,000 steps walking around, and cafes that spill out onto the streets are effectively natural instances of the serendipitous moments that I was desperately trying to create in a 12-foot by 12-foot space. And I think there are perhaps more creative ways that, uh, that cities can allow for more art and these maybe more structured and explicit moments of, let's say, magic or, or, or gameplay. But I don't think it needs to be there. I think it's more important to just mandate that ground floor spaces are active and that they are public and they invite people in. Uh, another great example in San Francisco is the advent of POPOs. Uh, so the acronym is P-O-P-O. Uh, but it stands for privately owned, publicly open space because we kind of don't have enough truly open space uh, in San Francisco. But now developers of, of new buildings, offices, or mixed-use buildings have to either allow for a significant amount of the lobby space to be open to anyone and for really exciting interior environments to allow people to sit in different ways and interact with each other. Or in many cases, these are spaces all the way on a rooftop, so they're kind of like a mini park on the top of these skyscrapers in San Francisco. I think that it's, it's sort of everything needs to be considered um, as part of the portfolio of interventions you can make to allow for more social interaction and, and vigorous activity like you described. Uh, but it may come in a variety of ways we, we don't expect. So what are some of the main obstacles that you have encountered? Yeah, so that first 
installation was just for three days. Uh, it was in April of 2015. And there ended up being, we were invited back because our, our installation was successful to do a four-week installation later that year. Uh, it was in a rougher neighborhood of San Francisco, a little bit further up Market Street. And the intention was to allow us to install that for four weeks. Within about a week of our second version of this design, we learned that the mayor's office had been receiving complaints from residences uh, that were near the area or some of the businesses themselves on the sidewalk that there were homeless people sleeping on uh, our installation and others in, in this sort of second phase of the festival. And if you haven't, if listeners haven't been to San Francisco, it's it, there is a, a massive homelessness problem in, in, in my city. And it's incredibly unfortunate that this public space we've been talking about uh, and, and discussing ways to activate it for health and for social interaction for a portion of our community in our neighborhood is the only space they have. And that was essentially leading them to seek refuge in some of these public space interventions we are creating or using them as a canvas in which to express their frustration with the system. And I supported their use of, of these uh, installations for that purpose. But I think those complaints that were sent directly to the city uh, got them a little bit nervous about um, the sort of PR of, of these uh, festivals. And they did ask us to take that one down uh, about halfway into that process. We were invited back the following year to do a much larger scale project that was meant to be up for two years. And uh, unfortunately, that had the same fate um, of uh, being asked. We were asked to take it down within about two months instead of two years. So my overall takeaway from that, that experience was until we've solved the more systemic problem and, and fundamentally uh, the most critical health problem in our communities of homelessness and, and, and many other socioeconomic issues, uh, just the affordable housing crisis itself in, in a city like San Francisco in which many families are having to trade off health decisions for simply having a roof over their heads. Until we've really seen how those larger policy and systemic issues in cities affect health and resolve those, maybe we're jumping a little too far ahead to be talking about public space. Um, and, and I've, I've just been able to appreciate that firsthand, spending so much time in public space in San Francisco, designing and observing these types of, of interventions. And it's led me and my work teaching students at Stanford and, and my own research questions to break free of my own silo of just working on the built environment to understand that if I ultimately care about health outcomes, longevity of life, quality of life, we can't just be doing physical interventions. We have to be looking at larger equity goals and, and social programs and a social safety net in our communities. I agree. And I think a big part of the, the conversation, so there's the two sides. There's the, what do we do with the homeless people, as you're saying, and yes, they need somewhere to stay. But on the other side, from the people who are complaining, I guess that relates a lot, again, to this feeling of safety that Deborah was referring to earlier. And like, mm -hmm. if you don't feel safe in the space, then you're also not going to use it. Um, we actually uh, did a study looking at homeless people in parks, and in fact, in Los Angeles, uh, parks with homeless people were actually used more than, than parks that didn't have so many homeless people. There's also a feeling of safety. You know, when there are a lot of people around, um, 
you know, it's safe. It's safer for everybody. So I, I, I don't think we should necessarily stop thinking about just improving the environment in general for everyone. You know, we have to try to tackle all the problems as best we can uh, with the resources that we have. Absolutely, completely agree. And so, what do you think, Deborah, are some of the obstacles for creating more public spaces like the parks? Well, I think the biggest one is is resources, is financial resources. I mean, we really under budget across the country uh, for parks. I know the in San Francisco there's a much higher per capita expenditure for parks than in most other cities, uh, and of course it shows because they do have this 100% accessibility in San Francisco. But uh, nationally, it's something like uh, we're spending uh, about $70 per capita on parks. And uh, you have to compare that to the more than $10,000 per capita that we spend on health care. So uh, it seems like we really are out of balance. Uh, we don't spend enough on public health and prevention. I think less than 5% of all our health care dollars are on uh, public health and pre prevention. And, uh, you know, when you uh, don't prevent things, that's, you know, why you end up spending more at the at the other end. Uh, so we need to sort of re-examine our values and um, and how that's reflected in how we allocate resources. Yeah, to jump on that point, Deborah, I'm thinking about how I would describe the ultimate obstacle to good decision making and in, uh, in urban spaces, and besides uh, the use of evidence <laughs> in, in informing decision making, I think it's the silos we've created and how decisions are made. Imagine a city uh, or cities all around the country being able to bring to the same table the direct healthcare practitioners as well as urban designers, and maybe we bring in the transportation engineers as well that are, that are continuing to create more car-centric spaces in which people can get by walking almost nothing, just, just leaving their suburban home and getting into a car and then going to the workplace and talking really fundamentally about the health outcomes that everyone cares about and realizing the ways in which a more environmentally driven or, or the sort of social determinants of health become part of the conversation around, um, around in improving the well-being of communities. And I think if we had more of that silo breaking both in academia and, and in our, our city governments, we will see more consensus on a more equitable or, or just reasonable distribution of funds and, and resources to the things that really work. And I think we would have more conversations like this uh, in broader circles, really advocating for the co-benefits of parks across so many different factors. Yeah. We, we undervalue uh, health and well-being, and we tend to respond, you know, when people are suffering and when they're sick and, you know, about to die. We put a whole lot of resources right there, and uh, it's hard to sort of say, oh, no, we're, we're going to, you know, not treat sick people, you know, as if there's, you know, we have to make that decision, but we end up putting less resources into those things that keep us healthy. And I think this is a great point to, you know, segue into what are some of the resources for our audience? You know, we have been talking about some strategies for designing these new spaces to think about buildings and the open sidewalks to think about parks. So for our audience who wants to learn more, what are some resources that you would share with them? We, you know, published some papers on our work on parks 
and physical activity in the scientific literature. And uh, I think um, if you go to Rand's website, uh, you can access some of those papers and also some reports uh, that we've written on, the, on our research. Uh, so I invite people to go there. I would recommend for listeners to step back to the big picture and think about what we're measuring when we care about health and what are the factors across many different fields that may contribute to those health outcomes. So one example of an organization that takes this broader view and, and provides a lot of useful data and resources itself is an organization called County Health Rankings. It's a collaboration between the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the University of Wisconsin Population Health Institute. And essentially, their model is to measure uh, health outcomes and health factors at the county level across the US. Um, the two health outcomes they ultimately look at are length and quality of life. It's, it's kind of as simple as that, uh, but it's worth looking into how you might choose to measure that because you can't necessarily measure quality of life uh, directly um, or, or it's, it's a more subjective measure. The health factors cross from the physical environment, um, or let's start with clinical care, which people tend to associate with all of, of health factors, but it's only 20% of, uh, of what they consider as health factors. But there are behavioral choices, social and economic conditions of communities, and the physical environment, which we've talking about. Uh, so I, I would encourage listeners to maybe start there and, and see the big picture, and then let uh, the, the internet <laughs> guide them to a variety of potential answers to questions they'd have. Um, another good example of a data-driven approach that tries to bring that health outcome data even more uh, granular down to the census tract level, almost the scale of individual neighborhoods, is a, a data set called 500 Cities, uh, which is the collaboration between, uh, again, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Urban Institute, and the Center for Disease Control. And they provide 20-something different uh, outcomes uh, all the way at the census tract level for 500 of the most populous cities in the U.S. And imagine being able to look at that information and understand how, first, we don't have equitable health outcomes across neighborhoods in one city, and, and to be careful not to forget that, but to be able to tie that to many of these differences in the quality of parks, the access to parks, and, and many of the other things we've described in this conversation, and start to broaden our view of, of, of how integrated our decisions around communities and, and the built environment are to population health. Great. Thank you so much, both of you. It's been an amazing conversation. Well, thanks for having us. It was exciting to take a step back and look at the urban scale with Dr. Deborah Cohen from Rand Corporation and Derek Young from Stanford University. They explained the importance of public parks, discussed ideas for increasing park use, such as walking trails and programmed activities, provided strategies for designing public spaces that encourage social interaction and serendipitous connections between strangers. At USGBC, we care about quality urban spaces, which has led to the Lead for Neighborhood Development, Lead for Communities, and Lead for Cities certification programs. To learn more about designing healthy communities, check out the related courses on the education platform at usgbc.org, including sustainability on an urban scale, and designing for healthier communities. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Built for Health by USGBC. Now we want to hear from you. What was your favorite part of today's episode? What are your best practices and strategies? Share with us on Facebook or Twitter at USGBC. To learn more, visit our website 
at usgbc.org. Thanks for listening.